0: The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. Romans 11 and verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. This morning, I want to preach to you on a topic that often bothers me, and I'm sure it bothers you. The title of the message, if I were to put a title on it, would be God's Greater Understanding. God's Greater Understanding. There's a lot of sorrow, a lot of sickness, a lot of death. We just mentioned the death of Brother Mackey's son, Clark. We think about people that we have prayed for. A lot. Well, there's a lot of folks on our prayer list, and we pray for them constantly. And sometimes the Lord brings healing, but sometimes He doesn't. Some people recover, others don't. Why is that? Why is that? In our human nature, we can't help but ask why to many of the problems that we face in life. The answer to this is, is really simple, but not easy to grasp always and certainly not easy to remember. And that's that, that God is greater than we are and His understanding is greater than ours in so many ways. You remember back over in Isaiah, the uh, 55th chapter? Uh, listen to these words in the 8th and ninth verse. God is talking there to, uh, through, through Isaiah and He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. One of the things that we always need to come back to as as the human beings that we are is that He is God and we are not. He is God and we are not because he is God and we are not he has a greater understanding of all the things that are going on in our lives than we ever will I'm not even sure in eternity we'll understand everything I know we will never have his understanding but I'm not even I always think about going to heaven and getting all the answers I'm not sure we'll get all the answers in heaven because to be quite honest with you when we get to heaven all the answers aren't going to (laughs) matter Jesus is the answer Jesus is is the reason. He's the reason we'll be there. And He's the reason it's going to be heaven. But why do some recover and others not? The other thing we need to remember as underlying this whole message is that not only is is He God and we're not, but He loves us greater than we can comprehend. So whatever He does, in whatever way He does it, He does it because He loves His people. And quite frankly, I I say this not to put down any other denomination or any other preacher out there or anybody that preaches some other message because there's a lot of God's children scattered throughout all the denominations of this world. Indeed, not even in denominations sometimes. But I'll tell you this, until you understand the sovereign grace of God, you cannot understand the sovereign and deep love of God. Because... The love He had for His people didn't begin at a point where they did something or they made the right decision. It is an everlasting love from everlasting past to everlasting future. So in dealing with this question, some people who recover, some who don't, what's what's the difference? Why is this? Let's look at God's greater understanding. God's greater understanding. You see, God's understanding of all things is greater than ours, but particularly God's understanding of time is so much greater than our understanding. You see, He is eternal, and we are not. We're not. Back over in, uh, uh, in Genesis, I won't turn there, but the 21st chapter and the 33rd verse, we read about Abraham building a, a, an altar there near Beersheba, and, uh, and he, he's, he builds this off altar to the everlasting God. And in fact, in Hebrew, that's one of the names of God that's given in the Old Testament. You hear about El Shaddai, El Elyon, those different names that mean something. El Shaddai is God of hosts. Well, this is El Olam. The word El in Hebrew means God. And the word Olam means eternal, means everlasting. It actually carries the idea of of everlasting past. That is, ain't so ancient that you have no beginning. An everlasting future so vast and so eternal that there is no end. El Olam. This is the first reference in Genesis 21 to God with the name El Olam. And later on, you read about it quite a bit in Isaiah chapter 40 uh, over there in the 28th verse. he um, He says, hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. The everlasting God, the God who never ends, the God who had no beginning, the God who uh, is eternal, the everlasting God, El Olam. In Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 27, Moses wrote, the eternal God is thy refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. Isn't that great to know that that he's you know a lot of the the gods that people created they they made they made them out of stone or brick or, or trees or wood whatever you know they sat there and they just they didn't do anything but God is not even any, he's not just an eternal god he has everlasting arms my daddy's arms cannot catch me anymore he's gone home to be with the lord but i tell you my lord's arms are everlasting he is the eternal god if i fall he will catch me. Even in the New Testament, he's considered eternal. Paul writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 17, he says, now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, eternal, you see, he is forever. And that word eternal there is the word that we get eon from. It's the Greek word ion. And that's where we get eon. You think about eons of time well listen God is the great Ion. he is the one who is eternal there is no end to him and I tell you compared to us <laughs> boy he's something compared to us listen to James chapter 4 and verse 14 James is admonishing those who would make big plans without including God in those plans Somebody who would say, hey, tomorrow I'm going to do this, and the next day I'm going to do that, and never thinking about our frailty and God's sovereignty. And he says in verse 14 of James chapter 4, whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? You know, that's a good question, isn't it? What is your life? What is my life? You know, I'm 53 years old. There was a time when I thought 53 was old. (laughs) We were talking about that before church. Uh, you know, I thought people that were 60 were elderly. That's, that's kind of what I thought it, in early years. They, you know, they're spring chickens now, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> 60 years old is young. And, uh, but, but if you think about how quickly you got, some of you are, are, are older than that, in your 70s. Brother Mackey's 84, 85. I've talked with Brother Mackey as recently as this past week about how swiftly time flies. When I'm 90, if I live to be that old, I'm sure I won't be sitting here thinking, boy, it's just been a long life. I'll be sitting here thinking, like I am now, how did I get here so fast? How did I get here so fast? You know why? What is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away you notice it didn't even say it's smoke you know smoke if i we burned some stuff recently and not too long ago i was looking up north of here and i guess they were having some kind of control burn seth you may have been part of that i don't know but there's a lot of smoke in the sky and it took it a while to dissipate but our lives aren't even like smoke our, have you ever if you ever noticed just a little bit of a vapor off of the top of a kettle that's been boiling, just not smoke, just a little vapor that goes up. How long does it last? It's gone just like that. That's right. It's gone just like that. Our lives aren't even like smoke compared to God. Compared to God, our lifespan is but a vapor, not even smoke. See, he's eternal and we're not, and he has an eternal view and we do not. We do not. So think about this. Suppose a loved one gets sick and dies. And let's say you live another 50 years after that loved one passes away. Sherry and I were talking about it the other day. Her, her dad, I believe it will be, it'll be 30 years next year that he passed away. And boy, it seems like a long time. Seemed like a long time. But in the eyes of God, 30 years or 50 years or even 1,000 years is nothing. Look back in Psalm chapter 90 and let's see what God thinks about time. In Psalm 90, we'll just begin reading in verse 1. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Um. I, I like to look at these anomalies in, in, in history. One of the great anomalies I've seen lately is the fact that uh, President John Tyler, who served from 1841 to 1845 as President of the United States, still has a grandson living today. He's in his 90s. Uh, that's kind of strange to think about that, but President Tyler uh, had this boy's daddy when he was in his 70s. And then this boy's daddy had this man that's still living, this grandson that's still living, when he was in his 70s. So only two generations back and, you're, and you've got a president of the United States and John Tyler's father, John Tyler Sr., was roommates with Thomas Jefferson. So you've got some strong connections there just over a four-generation period to history. And, and that's amazing to me because generally speaking... Uh, I, I don't have any connection whatsoever to somebody who lived in the 1700s. Those generations are lost to me. But the Lord has been our dwelling place in all generations. We think about, you know, one of the things that's fascinated me in the movies is, is any movie about someone who's, who's immortal. You know, obviously it's fictional, but it's, uh, you know, something that where somebody who's lived through many generations of time and, and doesn't die and, and gets to see all this history. I think that's amazing. It would be so neat to see that. But, but, but we don't get to do that. We don't get to live that long. They only lived that long in the Old Testament uh, before the Flood. But I'll tell you, the Lord has been around for every generation. He has been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Now think about that, think about a number line, I've, I've used this example before I know but think about a number line that you, like you used to have in math at school, you have a zero right here, and on this side of the number line, at least as I'm looking at it, you'd have positive numbers, one, two, three, four, five, on to infinity. On this side of the, of the zero, you'd have negative numbers, negative one, negative two, and so forth, all the way to negative infinity, okay? Now, I can kind of understand positive infinity, Brother Glendon, but I can't quite grasp negative infinity, going off with something that never had a beginning, but that's exactly what God is. He is, some, he is a being who has never not existed. From eternity past, from infinity, if you go all the way down that number line to negative infinity, There's God before negative infinity. Isn't that something? And if you go all the way to the end of the number line, the timeline, if you will, to positive infinity, there's God at the end of that number line. In fact, he's beyond both both everlasting past and everlasting future. I I can't hardly grasp that, but that is God. That's that's his view of time. In fact, the only way I can kind of comprehend it is to think about it this way. That there, there is a time, we are living in a timed world, a, a world that's temporal, a world that has time. It's, you know, we got up this morning when the alarm clock went off and you're moving forward. We're not going back to it, we're just continuing to march forward. In heaven, there is no time. God is outside of that time world. He's looking down upon this time world in a way that we can't comprehend right now. And it gets even better. Thou turnest man to destruction, verse 3, and sayest, return ye children of men. Look at verse 4. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. You know, a thousand years is something to me. But it's nothing to God. Nothing to God. We're told in Isaiah chapter 57 that he's the high and holy one that inhabiteth eternity. He lives in a place we can't fathom. He lives in a way we can't understand. He sees time in a view that we don't have. He inhabits eternity. So back to our example. Suppose a loved one dies. Sherry's daddy 30 years ago nearly. Maybe one of your loved ones dies and you live for 50, 75 years, 100 years. That seems like a long time to us. But you know, when a 1,000 years is but as yesterday when it is past, that's not much time at all, is it? That's not much time at all. See, God has an eternal view and we don't. Now, Now, I will say this. I'm so thankful that one day we will in ecclesiastes the 12th chapter you can turn there sometime and read that whole 12th chapter is about aging and getting older it's metaphors in there so many analogies to things in life in there but but it's about us getting older but it says in one place i believe it's verse 5 that man goeth to his long home to his long home you know what that word is for long home olam the same word that's used to describe God, El Olam, the eternal God. Man is going to that same Olam, that same eternal home. One day, for us, it'll seem like nothing. It'll seem like nothing. See, God's understanding of time is greater than ours. Sometimes we get, we get frustrated with God. Sometimes we get upset with God. We think, God, why? You know, Mary and Martha, they got upset with Jesus. Lord, we sent for you. Why didn't you come? It's been four days. You know how short a time that is for God? (laughs) A thousand years is like yesterday. (laughs) Four days is nothing in His sight, you see. We'll come back to that in a minute. But think about that God's understanding of time is greater than ours. And also, God's understanding of our needs is greater than ours it's greater than ours see sometimes our wants don't line up with our needs sometimes we want something that we don't really need i've seen a couple of movies over the past few years one as recently as christmas day about somebody who was able to grant wishes and the next thing you know everybody is getting their wishes granted there was one point during the process where, uh, where a man and a woman got into an argument at a cafe and the woman, the, the man had Irish uh, blood in him. The woman said, I wish all you Irishmen would go back to Ireland. And he said, I wish you'd drop dead. Well, guess what? <laughs> it happened, you know. His wishes messed her up. Her wishes messed him up, you see. If we all got everything we wanted, we'd have trouble because we don't really know sometimes what we want. We think we need wealth. When we really need God. Remember what Proverbs 23 and verse 5 says. Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. And they fly away as an eagle toward heaven. We think we need companionship. What we really need is God. You know, uh, especially in, in regard to, uh, to marriage. Proverbs 18 says, Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing and obtaineth the favor of the Lord. Marriage is a good thing. Finding a wife, finding a spouse, finding a husband is a good thing. But 1 Corinthians seven thirty three, Paul says, He that is married careth for the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And he's not saying there's anything wrong with marriage, but he's saying there may be people in this world who don't marry. And, is, and I, I know some people like that. I know some some folks that are single to this day. But you know what? The Lord has sustained them. We think we want these. You know, I've seen people, oh, let me just throw this in here for no extra charge, okay? Some of you young folks, some of you older folks, whoever, whoever you may be. I don't know your situation always. Uh, there are those that will get to the point and say, gosh, I'm so many years old and I hadn't married yet. I better find somebody (laughs) that's a bad place to be that's that's not the place you want to go okay what you want to say is lord lead me to the person that would be best for me you know uh, i preached a message a series of messages sometime back about finding the right person and we realized from those messages that that's not the right question to ask not lord Find me the right person. Is the question? Is Lord help me to be the right person. Help me to be the person that the person that I'm looking for is looking for. You know. Um, You see, we think we need things, but what we really need is God. We we think we need healing, and certainly we pray for that. But what we really need is God. And sometimes, sometimes we don't need what we think we need. You know, if God had given me riches, if he'd made me a rich man, I'd probably be sorrier than gully dirt, you know? There's no telling. I'd probably be, you may say, well, you're pretty sorry already, Brother Chris. Well, I'd be worse. I promise you that. If, he, if he'd given me a life of ease, uh, servants to serve me and, 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 and riches to, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, there's no telling what I'd be. There's no telling how sorry I would be. Paul, <clears throat> Paul thought he needed something in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul prayed a prayer fervently. You remember our problem we talked about at the beginning of this, this message? What happens? I mean, why is it that sometimes healing comes, sometimes it doesn't? Why do some prayers get answers and others not? In the 12th chapter of 2 Corinthians verse 7, Paul writes this, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Now, let me stop right here and say this, that I'm sure Paul didn't ask for this thorn in the flesh. In fact, we know he didn't because he asked God to take it away. He also doesn't say God gave him the thorn in the flesh. This isn't a message about where suffering and sorrows and tribulations come from. But let me just say to you that they most often don't come from God. You know, why does somebody get cancer and die? It's because they're genetically predisposed to that or they got exposed to something. It's not because God wadded up a big old wad of cancer and cast it down upon somebody. God can bring chastening upon us, but most of the things we experience in this life are the result of the sin curse that's on this world because of Adam. But be that as it may, notice here that, that Paul didn't, obviously didn't want this. God suffered it to come upon him, and he says, For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. Now, if Paul is like we are, sometimes Paul might just say, Well, Lord, I've been serving you. I've been traveling all over this world, and, you're, and I've asked you three times, fervently. I prayed for this thorn in the flesh to be gone. I, I'm done with you, Lord. I just, uh, uh, you know, you haven't answered my prayer. <laughs> but see, Paul didn't have that attitude, and we don't need to have that attitude as well he's, because he's looking back now, and Paul understands a little bit of why. He said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness see Paul in verse 7 kind of gives us an insight into what he thinks the reason for this thorn in the flesh was Paul apparently had the same problem I do which is pride and you got that problem too by the way Paul struggled with pride and he said lest I should be exalted above measure I've got this thorn in the flesh now I'm so glad that you know there's a lot of speculation about what the thorn in the flesh was some people said it was an eyesight problem. Some say he was limping but it doesn't matter. He didn't tell us. We, he told us all we need to know here. The bottom line is, is that, it, that Paul had a thorn in the flesh. If you have a thorn in the flesh, then you, it, it doesn't matter whether yours is like Paul or not, just to understand that, that uh, the, the Lord's grace is sufficient for thee. And he says, for my strength is made perfect in thy weakness, you know, I don't, have a, I don't have a problem looking to the Lord and staying close to Him when I'm struggling with problems. You know, I think the closest, I've mentioned this before, I think one of the closest times in my whole life that I was to the Lord is when we found out Ashley had diabetes. That was a terrible time for us, for me. It was tough. There's about six or eight weeks there that we really had a hard time. Sherry struggled with it. We, we all struggled with it. Man, I look back on that time. I was closer to the Lord then than I've probably been any time else in my life. You know why? Because instead of being fat and happy and not in need of anything and sitting on a, in the lap of luxury, I was in the depths of need and despair almost. And the Lord was there. In my weakness, the Lord's strength was made perfect because as long as I think I'm strong, you know, I don't need the Lord. You know, that's the problem with America today. We are living in the lap of luxury. We don't need the Lord. We don't think we need Him because we've got all that we need at our fingertips. You know, I don't think I, I didn't shop. I don't think I even went to the, to the store one time during Christmas. I just logged in Amazon and there it came. You know, it shows up at the house. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? And, and, and you know, I was aggravated a time or two when the Amazon app was slow. I was just, you know, I was sitting there and said, Well, this thing won't go. Well, you know, it, it saved me 45 minutes over there and, and probably two hours in the store with all the people and 45 minutes back. But yet I was aggravated because it, it, it wouldn't load for about 30 seconds, you know? That's the way we are. We don't need the Lord. We just need Amazon. We just need Google. That's all we need today, right? I'll tell you what, those folks, those folks in Africa that my brother and others have gone to visit through the years, let me tell you, beloved, they are close to the Lord. They are close to the Lord. Y'all remember some years ago when Brother Martin Anyani came and preached from the pulpit in the old church. Brother Martin probably weighed 90 pounds, struggling with all kinds of sicknesses and illnesses now praise the lord i don't know if i've even told you all this but a couple of years ago he came back he came to uh to over to uh, tuscaloosa church and preached and he had gained probably 50 pounds because they had you know all they needed they fixed his water they fixed his water instead of the instead of the water draining off of the latrines from up in the hillside down to where they were drinking of their water they now had a well that was that was purified but, but be that as it may, those folks over there are struggling. They are having economic problems. They're having sicknesses. You know, the average br- Brother Obey, who was the one who started it all over there, uh, I'll never forget the day that he died. My brother came up to my office and wept with me because he was so close to him, and it broke his heart so much. Brother Martin died in his 40s, and he killed himself serving the Lord. He was traveling too much, and he was traveling too far uh, for his health. And he gave his life in the service of the Lord. Man, that's something. You know, it, it's, it's, if I have to think about getting in my car and driving an hour and a half to Vestavia Primitive Baptist Church, there are times I think, well, I just can't do that. Beloved, there were people coming two days journey over there to hear Tim and the others preach when they were there. Because they were hungry for the Word of God. They were hungry for the things of the Lord. See, they weren't filled up to the brim with the luxuries that we have. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, most gladly will I therefore rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You see, sometimes we don't really need what we think we need. God's understanding of our needs is greater than ours. But I think more than anything else, if we could get a view of this next idea in our minds, we would would understand and not have a problem with the fact that some recover and some don't, some prayers are answered and some aren't. Because you see, God's understanding of our destination is greater than ours. God's understanding of our destination, of where we are going, is so much greater than our understanding of it. You see, He has prepared our destination for us. In Matthew, the 25th chapter, when he's sitting there and uh, talking about those that had given a drink of water to these little ones and so forth, he says, Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You see, don't in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, we're told that, that we are chosen in Christ. Before the foundation of the world, beloved, don't let the doctrine of election scare you. Don't let it make you anxious. Let it lift you up, because what it is is the story of an everlasting love affair that the Lord has for His people. You see, He didn't come up with uh, with uh, with salvation as an afterthought. He didn't He didn't put Adam down here and then Adam sinned and God said, "Oops, we got to do something to fix this." God prepared from the foundation of the world for His people to be with Him. Him. When he says in John the fourteenth uh, chapter, "I go to prepare a place for you," he meant what he said, and the preparation he was making was not remodeling heaven. He wasn't going up there to remodel heaven and to uh, to throw to tear down some buildings when you mess up, and to add some more when you do right, beloved. He was going by the way of the cross to prepare our way into the holy of holies, into the place where God is. He tells Timothy, uh, Paul tells Timothy in Second Timothy one nine that he has saved. us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. Praise God, it's not according to our works because I'll tell you, beloved, my works would never reach any kind of level anywhere close to what it would take to get me to heaven. In fact, Isaiah tells us in chapter 64 that our righteousnesses, that is all the good works, every single one we can do, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in His sight. Beloved, He says that He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us when we believed. No, beloved, praise God. It was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. See, he has prepared our destination for us. He knows what it is. I mean, listen, I love you. You all look so good to me right now. But but beloved, you're nothing compared to what you're going to look like when you're in heaven. This place is beautiful. I'm so thankful for it. But it's nothing compared to the streets of gold, the walls of jasper, the gates of pearl. I can't wait to see that. God has seen it. God knows what He's prepared for us. And praise God, He has prepared us for that destination as i've already said hey he chose us in christ before the foundation of the world he tells us in jeremiah in one place he said i have i think it's jeremiah 31 and verse three i have loved you with an everlasting love that means a love that's never ending that means it goes all the way through eternity past and it will go through eternity future he chose us before the foundation of the world to be with Him in that destination. And the rest of the purpose of God, uh, you can read about, including the, the grace of God in, uh, in, uh, in election in Romans, the eighth chapter. And look at verse 29 for whom He did foreknow. That's the foreknowledge of God. That's the, and by the way, that doesn't say what He foreknew, that's not talking about what you're doing. Or what you might do. Some people say election is about God looking down through time and seeing what you would do with Him. Would you accept Him or not? No, beloved. It says whom... He did foreknow. That's a personal pronoun. Whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate. Uh, I love that because, see, from before the foundation of the world, we uh, uh, we have the foreknowledge of God, God knowing us in election, God choosing us before the foundation of the world. And what He did before the foundation of the world prepared us for what happens after the world ends. He predestinated us to be conformed to the image of His Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Don't ever let anybody tell you you're part of the chosen few. Sometimes we get that idea. We get, oh, it's just the chosen few. Beloved, let me tell you something. It's a number that no man can number. It's so vast we can't even. You could start counting at the day of your birth and add it up. All you Just say a numbers. One, two, three, four, five. And you could not number it by the time you died. No man can number that multitude. He says... <clears throat> Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. You know, that's a divine, effective call. The Holy Spirit, Jesus says in John 5 25, he says, Behold, the hour is coming, and now is, when they that are dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. That's the call of regeneration. The Holy Spirit, he says, You must be born again. And, 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 and he says, in, and the second time he mentions that in John chapter 3, the Greek word there means born from above. It doesn't come from within, it comes from above. And whom he called, then he also justified. Need we discuss the great sufferings of Christ on the cross? Do you understand that he justified us through his death, burial, and resurrection? His resurrection was proof that we had been justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. That's past tense too, isn't it? Well, I don't know about you, but I think you know this. I'm not glorified. You're not glorified. But did you know in the mind and purpose of God, you're already glorified? Do You know that he has spoken it and it is so sure that it can be talked about by God in the past tense. And I tell you, that glorified part is exciting. It's exciting to me. Yeah, I tell you, what does it mean? What does it mean to be glorified? Well, for one, for one thing, it means that we will be perfect. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the great resurrection chapter there, this is what he says about it. He says uh, down about verse 50 or 51, um, he says, Behold, verse 51, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkle of an eye at the last trump for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. You know, there's a difference in what we'll be like in heaven and what Adam was when he was here. Adam was perfect in the sense that he was sinless when he was created, but he wasn't perfect in the sense that he was not corruptible. He was able to be corrupted as seen by the fact that he was corrupted. He ate of that fruit. But beloved, the time is coming when we shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. He said this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? We're going to be perfect, beloved. It means we'll be perfect. I, I also believe it means that we will be us. I don't have time to go into it this morning, but I'll say this much. Often the question arises, will we know each other in heaven? Well, I, I believe we'll know each other in heaven. I know that Peter and James and John knew Elias and Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration. They knew who they were. But the difference is is that we won't be this old, in these old sin-cursed bodies We'll be in perfect bodies. Somebody asks about the babies that die. Will there be, be babies in heaven? Will you, will you be young you? Will you be, be old you? I don't know the answer to that question. I just know you'll be perfect you. You'll be perfect you. And something even more glorious than that to me is found over in 1 John chapter 3. <laughs> Glorified means that we'll be Perfect. But it means that we'll be like him. Chapter three of First John, verse two, beloved: Now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. You know, David said back over in the uh, the seventeenth Psalm. He said. In verse 15, as for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I wake with thy likeness. I don't know about you, but there's never been a day in my life I've been perfectly satisfied. You know, I've been satisfied to some extent with with some days than others. But I've never been perfectly satisfied. There's always been something that could have been a little better. You know, I've never been perfectly satisfied with a Christmas morning, you know. We've talked about that before. Get those gifts coming in, and next thing you know, something's broken. Or you didn't get exactly what you wanted. Or you didn't get as much as what you wanted, you know. Or or after you got everything you wanted, you know, in a day or two, the knee wears off. And and you see something, you want more. (laughs) I had never been satisfied with myself. I'll tell you, beloved, I've already sinned this morning. I love this time together with you here. I love the fact that the Spirit is here. I feel the Spirit of the Lord. But I'll tell you, I've already committed sin this morning. And and if you'll be honest with yourself, you have too. I've never been perfectly satisfied with myself. But you know what? There's coming a day when I will be perfectly satisfied with my surroundings and with myself. Oh, what a day that'll be. See, the gospel, so what, what, what's the deal? Some people recover, some don't. Well, here's the deal. Here's the deal. The gospel gives us a hope that supersedes the healing of our bodies. So, you see, there was a time when Jesus was called to a loved one's side. They sent word, Mary and Martha sent word to him. They said, Jesus, come, please. Our brother's sick. And, and we're told this is one that Jesus loved. And you know what happened? He tarried. He didn't come. And it, it, from what I read in John 11, it was on purpose. He did not go. When, as we look at it, he should have gone. You know, if, somebody call, if you call me and tell me your loved one is sick, Mackie called me, well, I found out on Christmas Day that Clark was in such bad shape. I, I wanted to get over there as quick as I could, you know. I want to be there, but not Jesus. He tarried. He waited. And when they got there, when he finally showed up, Mary and Martha met him, and they said, Lord, if thou hadst been there, our brother wouldn't have died. And then they took him to the tomb where he had been buried for four days, and they said themselves that the decomposition process had no doubt already begun. They said, Lord, he's been dead for four days, and now he stinketh. But he went there anyway. You remember what he did, though, when he got there? He told them to roll roll away the stone. And it's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Why did he weep? Well, I think he partly wept because of empathy with Mary and Martha. I, I believe he's touched by the feeling of our infirmities. It's okay to cry when you lose a loved one. It's natural. It's, it's not natural if you don't. <laughs> and the Lord understands that. The Lord gets that. He felt that. He, he wept with them. But I, I suspect that the weeping was even more out of sympathy. For what he was about to do to Lazarus. Because you see, I think Lazarus got the rawest deal in all the scriptures. (laughs) Lazarus died. He got sick. He suffered. He died. And according to what I read in the word of God, when we die, when we leave this body, we're Absent from the body, but present with the Lord. So no doubt he was there in this place that God had prepared for him. He was, uh, he was experiencing all the glory of heaven. And then <laughs> Jesus is about to call him back from that. I, they, I, he had to make him forget it. That's all I know of. He, he had to have made Lazarus forget all that. Because I don't believe Lazarus would have been any, any earthly good if he came back. Remembering all the glory of heaven. But he brought Lazarus back. I believe that's one reason he was weeping. He was going to bring Lazarus back to the same body that he ought, that he'd had before, a healed body, no doubt. But he was going to have to die again. He was going to have to go through it all again. You see, he had to. He had a a body that was still a human body, not a glorified body, and that was not what Jesus came here, his primary purpose, to do. He didn't come here to heal us from sickness. He didn't come here to make our lives better, to make us feel better. He didn't come here to do all that. He came came here to deliver us from the sin curse of this world. He came here to ultimately resurrect us in perfect bodies. So you see, I don't know what, I know the purpose of God is to Lazarus, was to raise him again. But I often wonder if in his heart of hearts, if Jesus was not weeping because of that. We say sometimes, Lord, you didn't answer our prayers. Because my loved one died that's not necessarily true maybe the lord answered the prayers in the best possible way by delivering that loved one from the sin cursed body that they're in as you see god's understanding ours, our view is so often just uh captured by our, our our human nature so often we can't have that vision but but our vision ought to be like Paul's was over in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So we bring this to a close. Paul had some troubles in his life, didn't he? He prayed for the thorn in his flesh to be taken away, and it wasn't. He prayed for deliverance from some various things, and sometimes he was, sometimes he wasn't. One time he was stoned to death, and, and the Lord brought him back. But ultimately, he was martyred for the cause of Christ. He was, he was murdered. But notice what he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16, For which cause we faint not, speaking of all these things that have come upon him. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. How? For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. How is that? While we look, not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen Are eternal. You see, God's understanding is so much greater than ours. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, and his ways past finding out. May we strive to have a heavenly view. See, that's what Paul was doing. He was he was engaging in his earthly walk, but he had a heavenly view. And that's what we need to have as we go through this life. The Lord is great. God is great. And He loves His people. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.